We feel it in our world and in our country and in our province and in our city and in our homes. From our government to our closest relationships, we are painfully aware that we need the work of God to bring freedom and healing and restoration. Welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast, where every week we're posting the audio of the sermons from Gospel Chapel. My name is Doug Dunbar. I'm the lead pastor here. And we're in the Advent season, uh, anticipating Christ. And one of my favorite uh, Christmas carols is, Oh, Holy Night. And in that uh, carol, there is the statement, The weary world rejoices. And today I found the uh, on the Campus Crusade website uh, this thought, How can a weary world rejoice? You may be entering this Advent season weary from this year or past few years, and maybe you and those around you are holding grief and loss in the aftermath of personal, national, or international tragedies, as well as the global uncertainty. You may be experiencing a range of emotions heading into this time of year, from anxiety to sadness to a sense of excitement or joy. Regardless of where you are in the journey, Advent provides us all with an opportunity to re-examine the life of Christ and why he came and how he loves us. Unless we understand who he really is, the weariness of the world can easily overwhelm us and we become hopeless. Well, today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 30 and God's promise of restoration, of healing, and of freedom because of his grace and the work that he does for us in Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. We're in this season of Advent, and Advent is really a season about longing and expectation and, and hope. It's about looking forward to the final and full establishment of God's kingdom here on earth. And our brother Abe spoke about this, that hope, that joy, that expectation when Jesus Christ returns. And during the darkest months of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, which has historically controlled the church calendar, and that's another issue for another time, we long for the light, don't we? It's only a few more weeks, and then the, you know, we get past December 21st, and you know, I don't really wanna get past it so much because that's my anniversary, but it is the darkest day of the year. My wife's teaching Sunday school. I don't know how you want to take that whole statement right there. Anyway, moving right along. I don't know how to recover from that. Anyway, I'm I'm going to skip the next thing I was going to say because that just makes it worse. Anyway... Advent, we're we're longing for the light of Christ to come into the darkness of our world, and that's what Advent is about, anticipating God's return as king forever. And Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel and Judah in the years leading up to, or, or in the actual experience of the longest, coldest winter 
that they have known metaphorically. Israel's sin has caught up to them and justice has fallen. The patience of the Lord reached its limit and things got difficult. Jeremiah explained clearly that the siege in Jerusalem would be painful. It would be ugly. Perhaps one of the worst experiences in Israel's history to that point. Starvation, cannibalism in the city, death, destruction, the temple leveled. Ultimately, they would be scattered into the nations, exiled to Babylon, and there they would remain for 70 years. And just as an aside, that's the context you need to read Jeremiah 29, 11 in. You know, I have plans for you, for not to harm you, but for your blessing. But, you know, the context is it's going to be 70 years and it's going to be absolute destruction. So how do you put those two together? God's people were reaping a harvest for what they had planted, sin and rebellion against God. And sin always rewards us with destruction. God's purposes in his justice and in his judgments are meant to lead us back to himself. God's purpose in all of this was to purify his people and to bring them back into relationship with himself. His purpose was for them to live in freedom and healing and restoration. And this is what Jeremiah encourages a defeated and destroyed people in this prophetic word that we hear today. And this is still God's purpose for us. Jeremiah chapter 30, starting in verse 8. Let's stand together as we read the word of the Lord. We haven't done that for a while. We got out of practice on this one. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. Be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mounds and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and the congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their rulers shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me? And you declares the Lord, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. So three main divisions in this passage that we'll look at today. The day of the Lord will bring freedom. The first few verses, the day of the Lord will bring healing and the day of the Lord will bring restoration. We'll fill each of those out. Ultimately, the nation of Israel only experienced some fulfillment of what Jeremiah talks about here. Some fulfillment of these promises when the Babylonian exile was over. When Cyrus said, go back to your town, uh, rebuild it, rebuild the temple. When Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi prophesied. When, when Ezra came back with the people. When Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They experienced some fulfillment of this, but not all of it. When we come to the opening chapters of the New Testament, Matthew 1 and Luke chapters 1 and 2, we find the nation of Israel restored to their land, to the temple rebuilt, but foreign oppression never left. Ever since the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, they were always under foreign rulership. There was never a king of David after that. We find men like Simeon in the temple in Luke chapter 2 waiting the consolation of Israel. We hear Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, a song of longing and expectation for God's deliverer to come. We hear the angelic messenger declare to Joseph that the son would be born to Mary and through him God would save his people from their sins. And in their minds, in the Jewish people's mind, that meant an end to Roman occupation and the establishment of David on his throne and a geopolitical power in Israel again. And don't forget our friends on the road to Emmaus. We thought this Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And don't forget Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, the apostles are standing there on the mountain with Jesus. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, no. No. Not right now. And so in many ways, the freedom, the healing, and the restoration that we are reading about in Jeremiah chapter 30 is yet to happen. But first we need to hear this passage as it spoke to the people experiencing Babylon, experiencing the destruction, the justice of God against sin. You see, freedom is only a longing when there's oppression and exile is real. 
Healing is only a longing for us when we feel pain and suffering. And restoration is only a longing when brokenness and displacement are real. God promises freedom and healing and restoration to a people who are enslaved and shattered and wounded and out of fellowship with him. And that's what this text is about from start to finish. God will work freedom and healing and restoration for his people. His people who are broken, enslaved, and far away from him. So the first point, the first, the day of the Lord will bring freedom back to the first few verses, 8 to 11. Without going down the deep rabbit hole of exploring what the day of the Lord is, here we can understand it simply as a moment where God acts decisively for his people in either judgment or restoration or both. Israel is in exile. They are under the yoke of Babylon. They were enslaved to a foreign king. But one day that would end and God would act in freedom would reign again. It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord, I will break his yoke, this is Babylon, off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for him. In this situation here, even some of the language reminds us of Israel and Egypt. They're servants of a foreign king but they will be released to serve the Lord. God is promising to act. Bondage will be broken. Freedom will follow. They will be released so they can serve the Lord. Again, this is reminiscent of God's word to Moses in Exodus 3:12. God says to Moses, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And the you there is actually plural, y'all. The whole nation will be serving God. Upon release from service to Pharaoh, they will be free to serve God. And some translations will have slavery when it talks about a foreign ruler. They were enslaved. And some uh, translations will say, when you come, you will worship God on this mountain. But it's the same Hebrew word. Interesting, slavery and worship are the same word. Romans chapter 6, Paul picks this up, right? You were slaves to sin, but you've been freed from that, so now you can be slaves to God. Uh, guess what? Kingdom of God is not a democracy. The kingdom of God is a theocracy. God rules. End of story. You don't vote him in. His policies are not up for debate. And in 10 to 11, the people are encouraged to be brave and steadfast as they wait for God. Look at that. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away. Verse 11, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. Salvation, God says, is on the way it may come later than you would like, and you might not even live to see it. The rest of verse 10 kind of bears that out, but it will come. 
Your offspring from the land of captivity I will bring back. You may not live to see it. Right? It's going to be for the next generation, but I'm making this promise to you because I don't stop working. Just because it's bad now for you in captivity doesn't mean it's going to stay this way. In verse 11, I think it's very important here is that the word order You know, to make sense in English, we have to change things around sometime. But literally, this means that this would read, for with you, me, declaration of Yahweh for your salvation. It starts off with this togetherness, with you, with you, I am. And and there's no verb there. I am, we have to provide in English, but there's, it's just me, you, me. It's kind of like in Psalm 23, where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. And, and we kind of have to expand it out, but, but the, the, the heart of the verse is just you, me. Relationship, togetherness. Salvation is about relationship. I am with you to save you. And so, First of all, salvation, this freedom God's talking about here is that it's not an act of just returning to the land. It's a restoration of relationship. Salvation is the act of God being with his people regardless of the circumstances. Salvation is the act of God being with his people regardless of the circumstances. It is the present personal creator and covenant Lord that brings salvation. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's about knowing God, being in relationship. But notice the rest of Jeremiah 30, 11, the tail end of it. God's saying, I am here, I'm going to save you, I will discipline you in just measure. I will by no means leave you unpunished. First, because of the wickedness of the nations and the oppressed, that oppressed God's people, God will bring those down. But secondly, God's own people will be disciplined. No one escapes. Freedom isn't free. Sin must be dealt with. Either you pay for it or God does. The wages of sin is death. Sin cannot survive in the presence of holiness. And God, in his saving work, sanctifies his people, makes us clean, and burns away the dross, but it still burns. God says to his people, I will discipline you in measure. And the Hebrew word here is used of corrective discipline, not of destruction. The goal and the aim of God's discipline is always redemptive, restored of bringing freedom and renewal of relationship with himself. And we're going to see that word again in this passage. When God acts, he brings freedom. Second, the day of the Lord brings healing. Verses 12 to 17. Wow, that's something, isn't it? First of all, he says, your, your wound is incurable. There's nothing that can fix you. You get to the end of the passage, except me. It's kind of the quick Coles notes. 
right? The section is in the form of a lament psalm. It's, it's crying out in the pain of the situation. It defines the reality experienced. You are wounded beyond repair. Your wound is grievous. Your hurt is incurable. There is no one to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. In the lament psalms, often the psalmist is crying out to God, why have you done this? And here's God basically saying, I have done it. I have wounded you. Verse 12 to 15 expresses this experience of pain of the people. Imagine hearing this for the first time. Imagine the people in Babylon in captivity who have suffered greatly at the hands of the Babylonians from the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the, the slaughter of many people, and just this remnant that is now living in captivity and enslaved. You've experienced the destruction of your city, the death of friends and family, and God seems distant and remote. You feel abandoned and alone, and God says, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. There's no healing for you. Ouch. You know, sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? In the moment, in the situation, we can't see God's promise of healing and restoration. All we feel is the pain and the torment of our present woundedness. That first clause, your hurt is incurable, the word means shattered and broken. Your brokenness is beyond repair. You can't put it back together. Your wound is grievous. You've been struck brutally. Nice way to speak to someone. And here is God declaring the truth of their situation, but this is the hardest part to wrap our heads around is verse 14. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy and the punishment of a merciless foe. This is God claiming responsibility for the situation. And yet there is a reason. Again, we have that corrective, the punishment in verse 14 is that corrective discipline that seeks restoration. God corrects his people. Now, just kind of as an aside, not all suffering and pain is caused by God. Some of it's just the stupid choices we make in life. Or others make in our sinfulness and our brokenness and we wound one another. And again, we find this word discipline Correction with the goal of restoration. The pain is real, the cause is God, the cure is repentance. The pain is real, the cause is God, the cure is repentance. God identifies the source of the pain and states it twice, right in the middle, right in the heart of this psalm, as it were. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, why bother, would be another way to put this question, it's kind of a, one of those questions that doesn't, has an obvious answer, a rhetorical question, why do you cry out over your hurt, your pain's incurable, because your guilt is great, because your sins 
are flagrant. I have done these things to you. And that's also just, again, showing God's covenant faithfulness because Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, you wander away from me, things are gonna get bad. Discipline is going to fall. God's covenant faithfulness isn't just when things are going well. Sometimes it's when things are going horribly wrong. Because our guilt is great and our sins are flagrant. There's no getting around it. Sin is the source of our pain. Spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, all of our pain is the result of sin. And it's not just the sins we commit, the things we have done or have been done to us, but the sin nature we cannot escape. The sinful nature we cannot escape. Romans 6, 20 to 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. When you were slaves to sin, and you were slaves to sin, and the whole kind of open section of Romans is about the unescapable reality that we cannot escape our sinful nature. It has wounded us so deeply that there is no cure. The wound and the sickness in human terms is terminal, incurable, and grievous. And there is only one source of healing. Therefore, verse 16, all who devour you shall be devoured. All the foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who prey on you, I will make a prey for I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. The incurable can only be healed by the creator, by God himself. And sometimes now, but ultimately when we see him, ultimately when he raises us up in the last day. The wound and the sickness is incurable and only God can restore and heal. John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A source of life and healing is Jesus alone. Romans 6.22 to 23 to pick that up. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The oppression you cannot escape and the wound that you cannot heal is the sinful nature that we all have. The freedom that you can experience and the healing that you really need are found only in Jesus Christ. God works to free his people, to heal his people, and then thirdly, the day of the Lord will bring restoration. The rest of the passage that we're looking at today, 18 to 22. 
For the people of Israel living in Babylon, the, the, the reality of living as exiles seemed permanent, and for some of them it would be. They would never see the promised freedom, healing, or restoration. Jeremiah had told them that. They would settle down. You go back to chapter 29. He tells them, settle down. Uh, give, give your sons and daughters in marriage. Uh, make a good living. Do good work. Uh, pray for the peace of Babylon, which would have sounded really weird in their ears because you're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Here they were called to work for the shalom, the wholeness, the goodness, the peace of pagan oppressors. And we can get into this a little more in the next couple of weeks since we look at some scenes from Daniel. Time would march on. The people that were hearing this word, the people that were newly in captivity in Babylon would grow old and their dreams of restoration would die in them. Time would march on. But God is saying that one day all of that would change, that there will be restoration, that they can live with hope in the midst of exile, confident because God has spoken. Not only will the city of Jerusalem be rebuilt, but families will flourish, worship will be renewed, honor will be restored, and God will raise up someone who will lead them into this new reality once again of being the people of God. Verse 21, look at this one. The, their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me? There's two pictures going on here. First, a prince a leader from among the people whom God himself would raise up, and this speaks of kingship. Secondly, one who will draw near to approach God. That speaks of priesthood. He's talking about a kingly priest who would be raised up by God, who would come before God, the high priest to mediate for his people, and he would also be the ruler and the king. And in this, the identity of God's people would be fully restored, and their covenant relationship would be restored. Their incurable wounds would be healed. Their slavery would be over. They would be the people of God walking in freedom and healing and restoration. And when Simeon, longing for the consolation of Israel, took the infant Jesus in his arms that day in the temple, when he was just eight days old, he declared, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In Jeremiah 21, 30 verse 21, Simeon got to see it. And an eight-day-old baby named Jesus of Nazareth. This kingly priest whom God will raise up to restore his covenant people. Sin is our slave master. Sin is our wound that cannot be healed. Sin is the destruction of every relationship. Jesus Christ brings freedom and healing and restoration. His mission remains the same. Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus as he's reading from Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Freedom, healing, restoration. As the people of Israel in exile and those like Simeon who longed for God's restoring work, we today live in the tension of what we know to be true of God and his word and the experience of living in this world that is not free, that is rife with sickness, that is dislocated from God's presence and loving rule. We feel it in our world and in our country and in our province and in our city and in our homes from our government to our closest relationships, we are painfully aware that we need the work of God to bring freedom and healing and restoration. That is all a work of grace that we cannot earn, that we do not deserve, and yet is freely given to us in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we long for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what Advent is to awaken in our hearts. A deeper sense of our slavery, a deeper awareness of our sickness and our separation from God, and a deeper longing for the freedom and the healing and the restoration that can only be found in Jesus Christ, our high priest and king. Jesus is the freedom we need, the healing we seek, the restoration we crave. We, like Simeon, long for the consolation of all creation. Let's pray. Today, I'm going to read a prayer by Walter Brueggemann from his collection of prayers called Odd to Heaven and Rooted in Earth that I think just speaks very well of what we've just heard from Jeremiah. Here is the prayer. You are the God who makes all things new. We gladly raise our voices and move our lips to acknowledge, celebrate, and proclaim your staggering newness. As we do so, we hold in our hearts deep awareness of all the places where your newness is not visible and has not come. Our hearts link to many places of wretchedness short of your newness. We picture our folks at home, sick, in pain, disabled, paralyzed, and no newness yet. We know up close the deep wretchedness of poverty, of homelessness, of hunger, of addiction, and no newness yet. Move our hearts closer to the passion of our lips. Move our lips closer to your own newness. Work your newness in hidden, cunning ways among us. Move us closer to your bodied newness in Jesus. Newness of strength come in weakness. Newness of wisdom come in foolishness. Draw us from the wretchedness we know to his scarred, bloody wretchedness that is your odd entry of newness into our life. 
We pray in the name of his suffering newness. Amen.